Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us once again for our weekly CIO strategy snapshot conversation. Glad to welcome back Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Jason Dreho. Jason, welcome back. Thank you for joining us here on a Monday morning. Looking forward to our conversation. Morning, Dan. Happy Monday. Yeah, it's uh, summer's coming to end. This is one of our final ones, so definitely our final one for August. Absolutely. And just thinking about the month of August, Jason, as we've been documenting for our listeners, our clients over the past few weeks, it has been somewhat of a turbulent month for the markets. I know we'll speak further about that in a moment, recapping the kind of activity we've been witnessing. And this has been as a result of an array of factors, among them investors seeking clarity from the Fed as to what their course for monetary policy might look like. And with that in mind, there was a lot of anticipation heading into Friday of last week about the Jackson Hole speech from Fed Chairman Jerome Powell. So Perhaps a good starting point for this morning, Jason. Can you provide some takeaways from the chairman's speech and speak a bit as to how investors responded? Well, there was certainly a lot of uh, focus on his speech, a lot of speculation about what he would say. The end result was not a whole lot new um, in terms of what he said relative to what he outlined uh, about four weeks ago at the July LFMC meeting in terms of the Fed and more to do. The inflation problem uh, isn't resolved, but also becoming probably a little bit more data-dependent. You know, there were elements that were certainly hawkish, you know, you know, such as you know, growth that, you know, being above trend, this is not consistent with inflation falling, meaning there's kind of more to do. Uh, but there are also elements of his statement to an, or speech that were dovish. You know, for example, he did acknowledge and said, you know, monetary policy, they believe it's restrictive. Uh, there are lags to monetary policy, but they will work, and so they expect that to kind of kick in. So you could sort of interpret that as, as being dovish that, you know, they've done a fair amount. They need to kind of leave, let see kind of play out. Uh, there was a lot of speculation leading up to this speech, uh, whether he would you know, talk at all about, you know, the neutral Fed policy rate or R-star, uh, have the Fed thinking on that. The official sort of published view from the Fed is that this neutral Fed funds rate is around 2.5%. The current Fed funds rate is close to 5.5%, yet we have an economy that's growing above the trend. So it's raised a lot of questions as, you know, is the neutral rate the right the thinking about it? Is that the right way to think about it? Uh, is the Fed think, thinking change given how strong the economy is? Ultimately, he didn't say much. Uh, he said, you know, we cannot identify with certainty the neutral rate of interest. And thus, there's always uncertainty about the precise level of monetary policy restraint. And he kind of left it at that, which is probably the, the best thing to do. Otherwise, you know, investors would speculate a lot on what exactly does he mean. Uh, you know, the bond market reaction overall uh, has been pretty muted. You know, rates have gone a little higher, a little bit lower. Market pricing for Fed hikes have ticked up a little bit, you know, a little more probability for a hike by November, a little more probability the Fed doesn't cut as much next year. But by and large, it was a relatively uh, as expected speech in terms of not changing anything kind of new, even though the investors were kind of focused on that. So with Jackson Hole behind this, Jason, just reflecting on the month of August, as mentioned, it has been a turbulent month after investors embraced the soft landing outlook during July. Now, in your recent blog, Marketheimer, you do point out a number of contradictory data and conflicting interpretations that are pulling markets in opposing directions. So what exactly do you mean by that? Well, the reference Marketheimer is to Barbenheimer, which has become this cultural phenomenon during the summer in reference to the movies Barbie and Oppenheimer. Uh, and by sort of putting them together, part of why I think it's become a big deal is there's 
this juxtaposition of, I think, two extremely different movies. It's almost like kind of ironic to put them together. Uh, but it's become such a sort of a big deal that I think now you're actually seeing the term Barbenheimer, you know, used in sort of, you know, you know to characterize two incongruous events happening at the same time. So it's almost like part of the lexicon now in, in the realm of social media. So I thought, well, you know, if that's the case for, for looking at broad things in, in society, there's an element that, well, maybe this applies to how we want to think about, you know, financial markets. So Marketheimer is my twist on that. It's less about sort of incongruent events, uh, but more like contradictory evidence. Uh, and conflicting interpretations of the data. So certainly, you know, there are investors who see the same data and will view it as either positive or negatively. A lot of it comes down to what was their pre-existing, you know, expectations or belief. If, if you believe the economy is slowing down, you're bearish, you'd point to some data and sort of say this is reinforcing my view and vice versa if you're on the more optimistic bullish side. Uh, now, as a result of that, because the data has throughout this month been giving a little bit of mixed signals in different ways, it means both sides of this kind of view can sort of view it in a way that's supportive and it's pulling markets maybe down but also up. Uh, and I think the net result is not a kind of a really clear direction for the markets overall. In a lot of cases, like these issues kind of pull down relatively simple or issues, but none of which have actually you know, easy answers. But that's kind of what I mean by this you know, Marketheimer concept of, of the markets being pulled in, in different ways. It was interesting how the blog was laid out within you ask in the form of questions whether consumers are still healthy, monetary policy is sufficiently restrictive, and if higher long-end yields are a good or bad thing for the economy. So what are your answers to these questions? Well, I think, you know, let's take each in turn. You know, let's start with the consumer. Two weeks ago, we got data on July retail sales. Some of the biggest retailers in the U.S., Walmart, Target, were, you know, reported results that were solid. The guidance was fine. You would come away from that saying the consumer has a really good strength. Last week, we got more retailers reporting results that were more cautious. You know, there was comments about realizing, you know, credit card delinquency rates, maybe consumers trading down. So after last week, you might think, well, I see the signs of consumer sort of cracking. So that's, you know, which is it? You know, our own take is that you know, the U.S. consumer is, you know, should remain fairly resilient well into 2024. There's certainly some pockets of weakness, like like rising credit card delinquency rates. Um, but the picture overall is still relatively healthy. And just on that point, you know, this morning I got a, a, an email from a, a different firm on data looking at credit card delinquency rates. They broke it down between the 100 largest banks with credit cards and then everyone else. For the smaller banks, yes, delinquency rates have risen rapidly. They're the highest they've been in a number of years. But for the largest banks, which will dominate credit cards, they've picked up, but from a very low level and are still, relative to the past 20 years, at a low level. So you can kind of look at that chart as a Rorschach test today, you know, is the consumer healthy or not? I view it as like, yes, there's pockets of weakness, but the overall story for the consumer is still quite healthy. Then if we turn to the monetary policy restrictiveness, there are investors who say, you know, the policy rate isn't that restrictive. This neutral rate that I alluded to earlier, 2.5%, that's not really the right level. When we think about the short term, it's much higher. And therefore, if it's really like 4.5%, for example, then monetary policy is not very restrictive. There's others in the camp that there are long and variable lags to monetary policy, and they're still going to bite hard. Our take is that monetary policy at these levels is restrictive. You can debate about the magnitude. But if being restrictive, it's going to weigh on consumer spending growth in the coming quarters, uh, as we already see for some of them. So I think that the trend is for the economy to slow, but still be relatively resilient. And the final point on, on higher rates, this is really referring to like the 10-year yield, the 30-year yield, that have gone up about 50 basis points or, or even more in the past about six weeks. There's this question of like what's driving it? Is that actually good or bad for growth and the growth outlook? There's two different kind of camps. 
for simplicity in this. There's one that kind of argues more from a technical perspective that this is a result of you know, large government deficit uh, for the foreseeable future. You don't have central banks with extraordinary monetary policy that bind the bonds. Um, this is why rates have to go higher, and this is ultimately why it's going to be bad for growth and for financial markets. The fundamental case is that higher yields reflect the fact that investors think the economy is going to have a soft landing. That's a consensus view, and nominal GDP growth is going to stay elevated for a while. If that's the case, long-end yields should be higher. Now, our view is that you know, as the economy slows, these long-end rates will decline on a cyclical basis. But there is a solid argument that you know, there should perhaps be higher rates over time just because the economic fundamentals actually merit it. So I think on these different questions, we would probably take a little more optimistic reading that you know, consumers' healthy policy is restrictive, so it's low. And higher rates are a reflection of that overall health, and that should kind of moderate as the economy slows down a little bit. So, Jason, within the blog, you cover two other prevalent topics, those being artificial intelligence, AI, as well as China. Uh, Both topics yielded some prominent headlines last week. So how do you consider these factors as market drivers? Well, from the U.S. economy perspective and U.S. financial markets, I think they're more of idiosyncratic than systematic. You know, and so everything we've talked about in terms of the economy, the consumer, interest rates, that's a broad market implication, broad economic implications. AI right now is, in some ways, you could say it's an individual stock, NVIDIA. And we saw last week a report in the second quarter earnings that exceeded already lofty expectations and they guided higher going forward. And despite this, and the share price popping 5% on the open on Thursday, it ultimately closed flat for the day. And other stocks that are sort of viewed as AI beneficiaries actually kind of closed lower on Thursday. Now, is this a sign of the market sort of exhausted from AI? It's fully priced in. Some argue that perhaps it's NVIDIA is like is so dominant in this space that they're actually taking kind of market share away from other, say, you know, you know, um, you know semiconductor companies. So the AI pie is not growing. It's going you know, to be divided in different ways. But it's also the reality that investors, more so in AI than the economy overall, uh, have more uncertainty, just how this all play out. What is the economic impact? So it's hard to have for investors to have a high conviction call, at least relative to their view on whether monetary policy is tight or not. And the same kind of logic to maybe even greater extent applies to China. It's almost you know, become worthless just in the past week or so of how much you, know, you see on, on the front page of the of, you know, various media asking, like, is China's economic model in dire health? You know, or is this uh, uh, you know, fear kind of overstated? The reality is for most investors, certainly in the U.S., don't have enough information to really kind of answer that question adequately. But it's also, you know, if you don't know a lot, most investors now are pretty lightly positioned in Chinese financial assets, you know, given they sort of de-risk. China doesn't have much financial integration with developed markets, and the economic spillovers to the U.S., if anything, of China slowing down is probably disinflationary, which would be positive. It's therefore a topic, I think, for investors to sort of looking almost more like as a curiosity rather than a real concern for financial markets. That may be the wrong view, but I think as a market driver right now, it's not a you know, big thing relative to what's going on with you know, the health of the consumer, interest rates, and even AI to some extent. So, Jason, if we bring this back to investing and what investors should consider at the moment in the way of positioning, how are you advising them through this late summer uncertainty? Well, as I mentioned, you know, markets are being pulled in different directions depending on how investors interpret the data, how the data comes in. So there's a lot of kind of these questions, the health of the consumer, the restrictiveness of monetary policy, when that's going to bite, the pain, potentially of higher rates, things of that sort. This will take time, and it'll take basically more data to get clarity of that. Uh, and we already get data for August starting on Friday. And you unfortunately, you're at the Friday right before Labor Day weekend, where we get the August payrolls report, 
to see if the labor market is continuing to cool, if wage growth is continuing to cool, which the Fed wants us. We will get the ISM manufacturing survey to see if, if the manufacturing side of the economy is getting worse or actually starting to kind of stabilize a little bit. Uh, this will help, you know, either reinforce soft landing beliefs or, you know, further kind of, you know, have investors question that. It will also guide to or give some indication of what the Fed is going to do at its FOMC meeting in September 20th. Uh, right now, it's like, unlikely they hike rates, and Powell, his comments on Friday would have kind of, you know, could have guided him, and he didn't, uh, at least say for September. So really what will be in focus is how do they update their economic projections, their dot plots, and how much more do they expect to do? And I think that will be a kind of key focus. So until we get that, I think you're going to see the markets pulled in, in sort of, again, these competing directions. But as we get more of this economic data and more clarity in September and October, I think you'll you either kind of reinforce a soft landing view or you'll get maybe, you know, kind of further pullback. You know, hyper-tactically, I'd say maybe the bias right now is for investors to kind of still rally. Uh, until their soft landing expectations are reinforced. What we saw with NVIDIA, popping 5% and then ended up being flat for the day. Just last night or overnight, we saw you know, significant policy action from China. Chinese equities rallied initially, and then by this morning, wake up and see the you know the Chinese equities are kind of, you know, a lot of that was kind of given up. So definitely more on the sale the rally mindset, I think, at the moment, at least for certain parts of the market. But it's also, fundamentally speaking, there's a lot of money still sitting on the sidelines. $5.5 trillion are in money market funds in the U.S., that's gone up almost $800 billion just this year alone. So there's a lot of money in ample cash, you know, waiting to be kind of buy dips in equity markets. Um, so if equities kind of pull back at all, and if the economic data is consistent with the self funding, I think that becomes the mentality more later this year. Uh, and that's what we think will happen. I think that's why we still, from current levels, see a little bit of upside to, to year-end, but also, you know, some upside to equities uh, to, to June from the current levels where we see the S&P going to 4,700. Given all this, if you're going to buy the dips, I think the dips in for those equity laggards, because those are the ones that offer, I think, the better risk-reward at this point in time. And given where yields are, and my earlier comment about uh, yields likely to drift lower, uh, buying quality bonds, kind of locking in some of that duration, this is a pretty good opportunity to do that right now with, with you know, high-quality investment-grade corporate bonds, high-quality municipal bonds, mortgage-backed securities, and even in some cases, treasuries. So I think that's the way to kind of you know, uh, you know, play it right now. Buy the dips in bonds and buy the dips in laggards at the moment. That's the way to kind of think of the, the market in this current environment. Well, a lot of interesting considerations as we begin to wind down the summer, look towards the back end of 2023. I will point again our listeners, our clients to Jason's blog, Marketheimer, which he has been making reference to during today's conversation, is available for you now up on UBS.com slash CIO. Though for clients of UBS, please be sure to reach out to your UBS. UBS Financial Advisor, if you would like to receive a copy of Jason's blog directly. Though, Jason, thank you for joining us once again to tee up another week and looking forward to picking back up with our conversation in the week ahead. You're welcome. Have a great week. Thank you, Jason. Again, we've been joined today by Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways 
and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.